Amen. And it's great to see you, and I um, hope your week went well, but now it's a fresh start, and we'll see what God does. By the way, if you haven't voted, you should vote. You have to vote by, I think, Tuesday, so I voted a few days ago. Jerry usually votes twice, because he, he mails in his ballot, but then he goes and votes in person, too. So we don't have a long voter's guide. I, I look at the propositions, and I say, instead of reading what it says... Real, the real question is, am I an idiot? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> no, just kidding. Vote however you want. I don't care. But, you know, be a responsible citizen and take that, take that privilege seriously because people have given their lives so that you'd be able to do it. And so I don't take that lightly at all. I um, just want to remind you. And by the way, while we're talking about ripoffs, um, <laughs> if you ever get an email from me, that says, I want you to go buy some gift cards and call in and give the numbers, which this week several people got those. If I really need money, I'll just charge it with my Apple Watch. I'm not going to send emails to people in the church asking for it. So those are all phishing scams. So just disregard any email you ever get from me asking for your money at all. Um, so that being said, Second Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel is the story of David once he becomes king in Israel. 1 Samuel talked about him as a kid when Saul was king. 2 Samuel is all about his life once he became the king. Chapter 5 is really pivotal, though, because this is where David goes from being the king over one tribe, just the tribe of Judah for a few years, and living in Hebron, to where now he finally becomes what he had been, you know, anointed to be by Samuel from when he was a kid, the king of all 12 of the tribes of Israel. So it's really pivotal. You know, everything in the Old Testament isn't there so that we'll know what happened in the Old Testament times. There's a reason why we have history. And this is true of all history, by the way. If you can't look at history and learn something for your life right now, then history is meaningless. When you're a kid, you study history and you learn it so that you can answer the questions. But in reality, history is there because it's full of lessons for us to learn. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians where he says, the whole Old Testament happened as an example to us. There are things that they learned that we can learn through their experiences. And so that's why we study the Old Testament, not just to get smart, we don't study the Old Testament just so that it somehow it makes us a, you know, more of an expert. We study the Old Testament because these stories of things that happened contain lessons for us. And if I can't find a lesson, there's really no reason for me to even read the story. But I think in this chapter, I see some powerful lessons as we watch David go from where he is to where he's ultimately going to live the rest of his life. This is how he figured out who he was, what he was supposed to do, and how he was supposed to do it. And those are the kind of lessons that each one of us wrestles with regularly. Who am I? What is my identity? And, you know, beyond that, where do I do that, what I do? And ultimately, you know, who I do it with? And then finally to go, and how do I actually do it? What does that actually look like as it unfolds? So I think... 
2 Samuel chapter 5 is going to give us some clues, hopefully, that will benefit all of us. Um, So it starts out, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, he was just over one of the 12 tribes, but now all 12 of them came. Now, in 1 Chronicles, in the parallel passage, it says 340,000 soldiers came. So this is a large group of people from all the rest of Israel that came to David where he was living there in Hebron. And they said, quote, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. They're like, we connect with you. We relate to you. You are real to us. We get you. And in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. So they go, we know you, but also we've seen you're really good at what you do. You were a great soldier. You were a great leader. And then they said, and you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. That's what the Lord said to you. So they're acknowledging the call that God had on his life, the anointing that God had put on him. And so in verse 3, Therefore all the elders of Israel, all twelve tribes, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And then it goes on to say David was 30 at the time. He reigned for 40 years altogether. So this is like the rest of his career. He was there he reigned over uh, in Hebron over Judah for seven and a half years and 33 and a half years over all of Israel. And so we see David figuring out, and it becomes clear at this point, here's who I am. And the people were, it wasn't just God that had anointed him. God had anointed him. But it's interesting that what brought them together was that they're looking at him and saying, the first thing is, you're, you're like us. We connect with you. We relate to you. No one should ever be a leader unless people can go, you're real. You're not pretending with us. Jesus showed us this. He was God in the flesh, and yet he emptied himself of all that he was entitled to so that he could humble himself and become our servant. And throughout the scriptures... That was always one of the prerequisites of a leader, that you are one of the people. You're connected to them, you're real. People ultimately, sometimes they will, but they should never follow somebody who's not real. So it starts there. But then, it's not just that. It's like, you're good at what you do. You have actually demonstrated effectiveness. And then ultimately, God's anointing is upon you, so we are going to participate. And in First Chronicles, we learned that they had a three-day party of celebrating him now becoming king. So now David's identity is secure. For the rest of your life, who you are is, man, you're one of these people who's good at what you do, but ultimately we all acknowledge God's anointing is on you. So now he's resolved that. Now, the second thing is, So where do I do this from? Now, he could have continued to do it from Hebron because he was comfortable there. He had lived there for, you know, over seven years. But he had to think strategically, where where is the best place for me to put my base of operations? And for him, Jerusalem seemed like 
a good place. Why Jerusalem? Strategically, it was in a good location. It had a good view of the surrounding area. It had also been something that God had promised to the children of Israel. And at one point, they had actually conquered Jerusalem. In fact, when David was a kid and he killed the giant, when he brought Goliath's head to Saul, he brought it there at Jerusalem. But now over the years, it's kind of gone downhill. And now the Jebusites are running it and they're like, no, you can't come back here. Now, if David had continued to reign in Hebron, he probably always would have been seen as just being the king of Judah. But when you're in Jerusalem, you're right there with Benjamin and Judah adjacent. And so why that matters, you go, Benjamin's a small, small tribe, but Benjamin was the tribe that Saul came from. And so he has a chance to unite the northern and the southern kingdom and From then on, historically, the tribe of Benjamin would always side with Judah and thus with the kingdom of David and with Solomon as well. And so this made sense to pick this place. But it's a great location. You have a good view. And if you've been to Jerusalem, it's just an amazing place. There's no place else in the world quite like it. Um, So he picks that out. And so he went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and And they spoke to David in verse 6 and said, you're not going to come in here. The blind and the lame could repel you. They're basically saying, you don't have a chance at conquering us. We have the high ground. Jerusalem is on a hill. And so you're coming up here. You think you're going to attack us? But David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David, which is right next to, right adjacent to the Temple Mount, where ultimately the temple would be built. So David got people together, and he goes, okay, somebody's going to climb up. Somebody's going to go up there. Once we get up there, we can open the gates. It's a done deal. But the first guy up the wall is going to become the commander of all the troops. Now, Joab had already been David's commander, but I think David was getting sick of Joab, and he was kind of hoping somebody would beat him out. So they had this match, but Joab ends up being the first. Now, it says that you know, he'd be chief and captain. First Chronicles tells us that Joab won that match. But it, where it says, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft, verse 8, a lot of people have debated what that actually was. And sometimes people have identified it as what we know as Hezekiah's Tunnel, that goes under the ground by the Temple Mount and next to the Temple Mount, heading all the way down to the Pool of Siloam. But we know from science that Hezekiah's Tunnel isn't quite that old. Um, So that wasn't the way. There's another hole called Warren's Shaft. They speculated they went up there. But in 1 Chronicles, when they tell the same story, they don't say anything about a shaft. So this word, the Hebrew word that's used here, can just mean a rain gutter. It can mean any kind of path. So they found a way, anyhow, to get up there, conquer the city, and, you know, Joab reestablished himself as the general. And in verse 9, David dwelt in the stronghold. He fortified it. He called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. And he went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And then it goes on to talk about Hiram, the king of Tyre. As soon as David got his home base, now he began to make alliances with other people. And so King Hiram from Tyre, they had a lot of wood. He starts selling them wood. 
Now, Hiram was still a friend of Israel's even when Solomon was king. He provided a lot of the wood that Solomon used to do a lot of the building that he did. So he's got his home, and now he's got connections with his neighbors. He's beginning to build a base of operations, really. Now, it goes on and says he did what they would all do when you want to make yourself at home. More wives, more concubines, a bunch of kids, so... You know, whatever. It's all about establishing a family. <laughs> but uh, it, it lists some of the names. In the Septuagint, there's a lot more names in the same verse. So, But the two that matter probably, Nathan and Solomon in verse 14. Nathan was the son of David, probably named after his friend Nathan the prophet, who later would confront him for his sin. But this Nathan is in the line of Jesus, Uh, When you read the genealogies, this Nathan was a forefather to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So he matters. Solomon, of course, not only becomes the next king of Israel, but Solomon is the ancestor to Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. So you see Nathan and uh, and Solomon, between the two of them, Jesus inherits the rights to reign on the throne of his father David legally through his, through his stepfather and biologically through his mother. So if you think that's interesting, good. So then, uh, you know, the Philistines saw and heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. So all the Philistines were looking for David and David heard of it and he went down to the stronghold. So Philistines here, uh-oh, David's making himself at home. And so now they figure, you know, earlier than that, the Philistines had it kind of easy because the tribe of Judah under David is fighting against the other 11 tribes of Israel. Now you really worry when they're all getting together. And so they came and probably this stronghold, the stronghold is just a fort. David made a fort there in Jerusalem, but this is probably the stronghold that he had from before. Judging by the description of the Valley of Rephaim, which is where they met, um, David had, in the cave of Adullam, he had set up a fortress, probably had a lot of weapons stowed there and things like that. And so they came there, so David took his guys down there to that old fort to have a battle. But look look at what happens. David, in verse 19, inquired of the Lord of Yahweh saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? Good way to start defending God's people is go, God, I need your help. I mean, I know how to fight. I can do this. It's obvious that we're going to have a war. It's obvious that they're coming after me. But what do you want me to do? And so God told him there in verse 19, the Lord said, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So he did a smart thing. He asked God, and then God said, you're going to beat them. So then they have a war. David defeated them. He said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. This was a great victory. The, the Philistines left all their images there in verse 21 which they would take good luck charms their little gods and stuff into battle but you know when they ran away or when they were killed all their little magic things were still there and it's interesting that 
you know, in, in those days when you would beat somebody, you would always take their gods. It's how Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant. He would later get it back. But, but uh, so they just kind of took their trinkets and going, oh, this stuff was sure, was sure effective and kind of making fun of them. So the Philistines regrouped. And in verse 22, they went up again to the Valley of Rephaim. So it's like, we've got to regroup and we're going to try to do this again. But look at, you'd think in verse 23, you would think David would go, we did this once, we're going to do it again. Now I have this one battle against them under my belt. I know exactly how this is supposed to go. But instead, he inquires of the Lord again, and God gives kind of a weird answer, really. David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, sneak up from behind, and the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. So there are people who look at this and, and they think that, oh, the, oh, you hear the marching in the top of the mulberry trees. Somehow angels are marching in the top of the trees. And, and I, I don't think that's what it was. Probably it's as simple as, and this is just a strategic idea that God came up with. It's like when they see you coming, they're going to be prepared. And now they have something more to fight for because they lost a lot of people and a bunch of their gods and everything. So this time we're going to do it differently. You're going to circle around behind them, behind the mulberry trees. Now, when you hear the sound of marching in the mulberry trees, probably just a reference to the fact that when the breeze begins to blow, the mulberry trees make that crunchy, swishy kind of noise. And so they're not going to hear you coming. If you go behind the trees and you just start marching through, they're going to hear leaves and everything, and they're going to go after you. But if you wait until the trees are already moving... You can slide right in there like with stealth technology and catch them from behind and defeat them. And it worked. God knew what he was doing. He pulled this off. And so, again, what do we learn from this? I mean, first of all, it's important that every one of us knows who we are, that we get a good handle on our identity, even as, as David did here. You find out, okay, who do I connect with? And, you know, what is it that I'm good at? If I, if I look back in my life and go, where did I fit? Who, what am I effective at? What, what do I do that really works? And ultimately, where has been God's calling on my life? Where is that anointing? And again, as, as we saw with David, you don't just go, well, God anointed me. God anointed him when he was a teenager. But it really didn't take effect until the people recognized God has anointed you. So if we need to know our identity before we know what we're supposed to do with our lives, we need to look back and just consider, okay, where did I come from? What do I do that's actually working? And where is there a recognition that God is working in my life? If we can't get to the base of that, then we don't know how to move forward. We don't really know how to do life at all. There are a lot of people who are trying to put their life together, and they don't even know who they are. And so 
David gives us a, a good picture here of figuring out who we are before we decide what we're supposed to do. Now, the second thing, when it came to Jerusalem and finding a home and, and building a family and making friends with your neighbors, it's not enough just to know who you are and what you're doing. You also need to know where you're doing it. That's a huge strategical point because you can't just take what you do and do it anywhere. It's important to have a sense of home. There's a proverb that I love that says, prepare your field and then build your house. The idea is, first of all, you put your career together. You put together, okay, here's what I do. Here's how I provide for myself. But now I also need to find out where. There are people who may be really good at something, but they're doing it in the wrong place. I've had friends who, I remember one guy who had a, he pastored a church here, pretty near here, and he was so frustrated. And he goes, Dave, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I'm doing everything I know to do, and it's just not working. And I watched his, his, some of his stuff online, and he was like really good. He was really a great, and I, but I told him, I go, you know, you're from the Inland Empire, right? You can always recognize Inland Empire people. I go, if you just go and do what you're doing here, but instead you're doing it out there, I think it'll click. And he did, and now his church, several campuses, it's going great, he's happy, he feels like, okay, I figured out who I am, when it really wasn't just figuring out who you are, it's figuring out where you're supposed to be. Now, the where shouldn't be an immediate answer, you know, but at the same time, you need to know why you're going where. There need to be reasons for you to be where you are. Some of that, as with David, has to do with your history, has to do with your family, your relatives, your neighbors. What, you know, the fact, like, for instance, for me, I, could, I would go wherever God led me, but I'm not going somewhere where there's no ocean. I'm sorry. I just, that's where I feel most sane. You know, is when I look at the water that I'm like, that's where God has spoken to me the most. So I don't care if I'm living in a dump. It's not going to be off in some puddle hole America somewhere, just for me. Now, for you, you might be like, all I ever wanted was some goats. Okay, great. That's fine. There's all kinds of places in the country where you can have your goats and, and you know, snow and all that other stuff that's so great and tornadoes and all. Hey, if that's home to you, that's awesome. But seriously, I think there are some people who life isn't clicking because they haven't at least been open to, I wonder if there's a better place for me to do what I'm doing. And you have to, people are everywhere, so you have to figure out there are some wrong reasons to stay somewhere. David easily could have stayed in Hebron, but God was moving him because he had a place where it's like, this fits perfectly. There are some people who, when they go somewhere else, all of a sudden they go, you know what? This fits. There are other people who try it, and then they go, eh, I just don't fit here. But knowing who you are, then figuring out where you want to build your family, where you want to build your life, who you want to, where you want your friends to be that you're going to be with for the rest of your life, you're blessed if you've already found that, you know? I know who I am, and I know what home is, and I, and I have people that I care about around me. Well, David shows us how important that is. But the third thing that we learn from him here is one that I think often we never get around to, and that is strategy. 
It's not just being who you are, doing what you do, doing it where you want to do it, but it's like, how do you actually do it? What are your tactics that are involved? Now, we tend to be creatures of habit. And so we tend to keep thinking, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing in the way that I'm doing it. It's as we get older, that becomes a source of security for us, really. Okay, I know how this is. It's what makes people nostalgic and trying to live in the past, trying to recreate, oh, what happened then? I want to make it happen now, and here are the keys. We are not supposed to figure out what God wants us to do. We're supposed to ask him and wait on him and be open to anything because chances are, if you want your life to amount to something, you're going to have to continue to modify your strategy because that's what makes you need the Holy Spirit. It, it, our job isn't to get so comfortable that now I know who I am, I know where I'm supposed to do, and I'm just going to keep doing the same things. I, if, if I did that, I would be like, okay, you know, I've all the years that I've been serving God as a pastor, I'm just going to start preaching my old sermons. They might be okay. I mean, I could go, yeah, that one was really, that one was most downloaded. So that must be a good one. So I'm going to do it again. But I don't know if what God wants to say now is what he said then. And so I come to him and like, I want something fresh. Now there's collateral damage that comes from that. People will be offended sometimes by what you say. And again, I, I wouldn't want to be somebody that never offends anyone because if you don't offend anybody, nobody learns anything. Being taught something that, stre- that rubs you the wrong way is the most powerful way for your life to change. But it's way comfortable not to do it. And it's the same thing for me. If I'm, like, if I'm approaching a study and there isn't something in there that I'm like, I don't know if I want to say this, I have to say it. Because one of the keys to life in the Spirit is that as Jesus said to, John, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you know what? The Spirit's like the wind. He blows wherever he wants. You don't know where he came from, where he's going. That's what it's like to follow the Spirit. Because the Spirit wants us to be reliant on the Spirit. So we do not, we can say, okay, I know who I am. I know where I'm supposed to be. And I know how to do it. And guess what? You just made the Holy Spirit completely irrelevant. Because you're assuming that he wants to keep doing what he's doing. Because we think that the Holy Spirit's like us, insecure, and he gets bored, you know, but that's good. He wants to be bored. No, he likes to shake things up. And so for each one of us, whatever it is that God's calling us to do, it's so important that our strategy is submitted to him, that we ask him and we wait and we listen to him. Because what you did well in one context, you might still be able to do it really well, but there may be another way that he wants you to do it. You become predictable your life becomes unnecessary. And, you know, a walk in the Spirit is anything but predictable. The thing that makes us start to die is when we just start to do things the same way we've always done them. Now, sometimes you take a chance, you do something different, and you're like, why, why did I do that? That's okay, too. That's how you learn. That's how you adjust. But for me, when I look at this passage... I come away, the examples that I'm getting from this life is, okay, I need to know who I am. I need to know where I am. And then I need to listen 
because I'm expecting him to give me creative strategies as to how to get where I'm going. That's what life is, ultimately. And so David shows that to us, and, and I love the way he, you know, this develops in his life, and I see it in all of our lives that we decide. Some people just get bogged down not even knowing who they are. Other people get bogged down because they're in the wrong place. Other people just fall apart because they've become creatures of habit and they're trying to relive the past. Um, Don't do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. You faithfully tell us history so that we are able to learn from the examples of history. Lord, if there are people here who They aren't even sure who they are, what they're good at. I pray that you would help them to focus on that, to discover that. There are others who are wrestling with where their home is supposed to be, where their place is. Help them to be open to moving or staying, but to finding that place of comfort. This is is my place. These are my people. And then for every one of us, on a daily basis. May we submit ourselves to your spirit. May we never live on autopilot, but may we continue to seek you on a daily basis to see what you want to do this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.